There are three kinds of people in this world. Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who ask, what is happening? Most people want to be in the group that makes things happen. Whether it's at home, school, work, or at church, we want to be recognized for our accomplishments for making things happen. That's why there are so many trophies or awards given each year at every age level in just about every profession. Trophies are tangible proof the person has accomplished something. I have a desire to be recognized by the world and by those in my field, but unfortunately, I get discouraged at times when I compare myself to others and see how I don't measure up to them. But is recognition from the world the reason God made me? I must remind myself daily that I was given life to have a relationship with God. That's the real reason I'm here. I'm here to live for Him. Few, if any of us, would turn down a little more applause and kudos from people we know. Who has accomplished more than God? The answer? No one. No one created by God has or will accomplish more than God. In Job 38, 4-7, here's how God described it for us. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Often in our pursuit of accomplishments and praise from others, we overlook the real reason we were created. Therefore, on occasion, we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we living for? Or to put it another way, what matters most in our lives? I believe there are two main approaches to life and living. I also believe that when life on earth is wrapped up at the end, there will only be one thing that matters for every one of us. So, here are the options. Option one. It's we-centered or me-centered living. The focus is on acquiring more stuff, craving a bit more applause, enjoying more pleasure, and receiving acceptance from others in our culture. Is being accepted and recognized by the world what we covet most in life? Is going viral on Instagram really the life that we are looking for? Then there's option two, God-centered living. Believers know from God's Word that our purpose is to glorify God and give Him praise in all that we do. The focus of a God-centered life is not centered on stuff, applause, pleasure, or acceptance from the world. All those things are temporary, fleeting, and ultimately unsatisfying. God-centered living is seeking God's will, accomplishing His purpose for life, and looking forward to a far greater reward in heaven. Jesus made it clear that acceptance and recognition from the world is not our goal, but instead, our goal is to be on our reward in heaven. In Matthew 5, 11-12, Jesus described it this way, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A life with great impact is not a life focused on seeking the praise of others, but seeking to praise God in all that we do. Here's how the Psalms express this idea. Psalm 146, verse 2. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So as believers, the greatest use of our efforts and words is to recognize and give praise to God. The purpose of life is to worship God. But praising God doesn't come naturally when we are working and striving for our own praise. 
praising God in our lives is possible when we are faithfully following Him. So the question we must ask ourselves is, are we faithfully following the Lord and seeking to praise Him? In the Bible, we see examples of individuals and nations that chose to follow faithfully after God. We also discover the consequences experienced by those who refused to follow God. In each example, we witness the effect obedience had on life. Judges 4 and 5 give us an example of two whose obedience to the Lord resulted in praising God. In Judges chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we read, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. What can be learned from their example? I think the main point would be, faith that obeys results in praise. So let me ask, what is worship? Worship flows from an obedient life. We discover in the Bible that faith, obedience, and praise go together. So what's the best way we can measure our success in life? A great measurement for life is how much of our attention is given to praising God. If we trust and obey God in our daily lives, then our lives and our impact on others will give praise to God. And when others evaluate our lives, we should want more than a filled trophy case. Instead, we want others to hear the praise of God from our lips. Praising God is how success in life is expressed. The book of Judges tells the story of the downward spiral of the nation of Israel. In Psalm 106, there is a recap. First, the people failed to follow God and responded to God's provision with rebellion. We find this in Psalm 106, 34 through 39. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. This was the rebellion against God that was experienced by Israel. God's retribution would come next. Psalm 106, 40-43 Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought unto subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. God's retribution would always follow their rejection of his will. Eventually the people would cry out to God with repentance, and God would bring relief and restoration. Psalm 106, 44-45 Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. The cycle of rebellion, retribution, repentance, and restoration had already been repeated several times. Because of love, God had already given the people Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar to lead them to victory. Unfortunately, the lessons learned in one generation did not seem to carry on to the next generation. After three cycles, you would think that they would learn. That's why it is important for every generation to recognize and obey the Lord on their own. The faith of parents and grandparents can be lost entirely by the next generation. In chapter 4, the people once again forgot about God 
until they found themselves under oppression. This time the oppression came from a neighboring king who controlled the area around Lake Galilee. During the time of their rejection of God and his retribution, the people saw little reason to sing God's praises. But after experiencing years of oppression, they did cry out to him. And how did God respond to their cries? Once again, God would demonstrate his covenant love and give them a reason to praise him. First, we are introduced to the desperate situation the people of Israel found themselves in in Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had nine hundred chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for twenty years. After Ehud's death, the people of Israel turned back to following other gods, rather than following God and praising only him. Their actions resulted in God's retribution once again. The oppressors were led by a king named Jabin. He was king of Canaan, and his military commander was named Sisera. Hazor was a city that Joshua had captured and had burned to the ground. The people had already paid the price of victory for that city, but years later they had allowed the Canaanites to move back in and rebuild. God's command to Joshua and the nation of Israel had been to drive out the Canaanites from the land permanently. Short-term obedience often leads to long-term consequences. They would not have experienced oppression if they had continued in their obedience to God. Because they chose to reject God, life was extremely difficult. They lived in fear and experienced great hardship. How did the nation of Israel go from a victorious and free people to a demoralized and enslaved populace? The Bible states that the oppressors had better weapons and greater military power. To make matters worse, the weapons of the Israelites were evidently few and far between. Looking ahead to the chapter 5 retelling of the story, we read in Judges 5, 8, When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? The answer is assumed. There were no shields or spears in Israel. Oppressive governments seldom want their population to have their own weapons. The oppressors certainly had the advantage in military hardware. But the Bible makes it clear Israel's real problem was not a weakness militarily. The cause of their sorrows was stated clearly in verse 2, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Their primary needs were not weapons of war, trained soldiers ready to enter the battle, or courageous leadership to lead them into that battle. Their primary need was to live faithfully to God. The reason for their impression was then not brought on by a weakened military or even economic weakness. The problem was the spiritual health of their nation. The nation's focus on we-centered or me-centered living had eventual negative consequences. Here's what we can learn from history. When God is rejected, personal safety and the rule of law are casualties. When God is rejected, there is a decline of culture, of morality, of safety, of freedom, of the family, and of the sanctity of human life. When a nation or culture turns their focus to themselves, that is, we-centered or me-centered, then the downward spiral has already begun. Now, after 20 years of heartache and heartbreak, the Israelites 
finally remembered God and cried out to him in repentance. The question would be then, how would God choose to restore his people? Next in the saga, we are introduced to a woman of faith. Judges 4, 4 through 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Deborah, whose name meant honeybee, was a popular prophetess. As a prophetess, she received and communicated God's word of truth to his people. Because their need was spiritual, they needed a leader who would boldly proclaim God's word of truth. Now, the people were probably praying for a military strategist, an experienced project manager, or even a successful CEO to lead them out of oppression. Instead, God gave them a faithful follower who would share his word to his people. Because Deborah was faithful and obedient, God used her in his rescue of the people. Look in Judges 4, 6-7. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Deborah's first assignment from the Lord was to identify and challenge the general who would lead Israel in battle. Here, we are introduced to a warrior named Barak. His name meant lightning. Notice Deborah's opening remark. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Evidently, Barak had already received his marching orders from God, but instead of obeying God's command, Barak chose to do nothing. Doing nothing when God has called you to do something is disobedience. And notice that God's command to act included a strategy that would lead to victory. Barak couldn't say, I didn't know what God was calling me to do, or God wanted me on a mission doomed to fail. The first assignment was for Barak to recruit soldiers from Naphtali and Zebulun. The people who were oppressed were the ones to fight for their freedom. Barak knew God's command and knew what was at stake. But still, he was hesitant to the point of disobedience. Evidently, Barak struggled trusting God, and without trust, there was no obedience. God knew that Barak had trust issues, so he not only supplied the strategy, but he guaranteed the victory. He had promised Barak, and I will give him into your hand. So Barak was called to obey, to follow God's command, and to trust in God's promise. He failed in his faith, which resulted in his disobedience. Obedience is always a product of faith. Now, after hearing the challenge from Deborah, Barak responded with his non-negotiable requirement. Look in Judges 4, 8-9. through 9. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak began to bargain with Deborah, but he was actually bargaining with God. Barak refused to follow God unless Deborah went with him. Why did he choose to negotiate? Was it a sign of cowardice or even fear? Or did he believe Deborah's presence was needed for God to keep his promise of victory? 
Or was it because he considered Deborah's presence a powerful recruitment strategy when calling men to battle? No matter the reason, Barak's obedience was conditional. After receiving the command, which included the strategy, as well as a promise of victory, he still said, if you will go with me, I will go. Deborah agreed to go with him, but she had a warning. She basically said, you will not get the recognition afforded a winning general because God is going to take down the opposing general by a woman's hand. Deborah shared with Barak that God's will was going to be accomplished with or without Barak. Barak had been given the opportunity to step out in faith, receive the honor for God's victory, but instead he gave it away out of fear or a lack of faith. Thus, mighty Barak, the soldier general, moved forward, but only with Deborah holding his hand. Judges 4, verse 10. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtalite to Kadesh, and ten thousand went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Chapter 5 mentioned several tribes who refused to send troops. These tribes, according to chapter 5, considered the opportunity had committee meetings to discuss the need and then placed it on the agenda for the next meeting. Oh, how many times have God's people failed to experience God's victory in their lives because they chose to discuss and dissect God's command rather than simply obey it? You know, today we live in a spectator culture. Millions will sit at home and watch others compete. At home, they are the experts in analysis and critique. Today, there are plenty of spiritual spectators filling the seats of the local church. Millions from the safety of their church pew will watch, critique, and criticize the few that are serving. At the same time, thousands sit in church and watch others serve. Thankfully, there always will be those who will stand up and serve God no matter what the price. God's command called for 10,000 men to fight, and that is exactly what God delivered to Deborah and Barak. So what is the next thing we discover? The number of soldiers in the battle is never the deciding factor separating victory or defeat. The deciding factor is always God's power. Judges 4, 11-13 Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Heresheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. As commanded, Barak led his troops to Mount Tabor. Tabor overlooks the Jezreel Valley. The valley is drained to the west by the Kishon River. During the wet season, it is a good-sized river. It is a stream or dry earth during the dry season. At this time, it is in the dry season. Sisera, after hearing the report from his spy Heber the Kenite, moves his army to the valley to capitalize on the terrain for his chariots. Sisera has the advantage on the open plain, but Barak has the advantage that really matters. Look in Judges 4, verse 14. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Barak had the high ground, but he had no chariots. He is facing a larger, better equipped force than his in the valley. 900 chariots must have been an impressive sight. Deborah again challenged Barak to follow God's command. At this moment, Deborah demonstrates faith in God and trust in His Word. Because of her faith, she had the boldness to declare God's Word. 
You know, God's people are always strengthened when they follow God's word. And along with God's command was God's promise of his presence. Here's what she said. The Lord has, which is past tense, given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? What is she saying? Basically, Barak, the victory has already been won. Oh, Barak needed to hear this. He needed to have faith in God. He needed to obey. God required his people to obey before he would allow them to experience victory. God already saw the victory. He wanted his people to trust and obey him, even if they hadn't seen victory in 20 years. Let's go back to Judges 4, verse 14. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. We see Barak and the Israeli army moving down into the valley. What did Sisera and his army see? According to chapter 5, they saw a ragtag army with few weapons, shields, or spears. Barak's army was outsupplied, outnumbered, and outpositioned. The forces of Sisera probably laughed as they watched this all-volunteer army march down the hill. While the outward appearance of Barak's troops didn't cause fear in Sisera's army, there was something unseen that should have caused fear. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul wrote, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What was marching down the hill to attack that well-trained and well-equipped army of Sisera? Well, it was not simply a hastily recruited army of peasants. It was the power of God on the march. I want to pause here and give you, the listener, a word of encouragement. If you are faithful to God, then no matter how the world, your friends, or your family sees you, you represent and bear witness to the power of God to change hearts and lives. The measurement of your success in life is not in your appearance, or in your recognition of others, or in your accomplishments. The measure of your success will be the level of obedience to God. Let's now go to Judges 4, verses 15 through 16. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Wow! The Lord won the battle for his people. How did they experience the victory? They were following God's strategy in obedience. Obedience to God is a powerful factor in a person's or in an army's life. How did God work? First, God threw the general, the charioteers, and the army into confusion or panic. The army was routed. And according to the song in chapter 5, Sisera's forces were swept away by the Kishon River. What happened during the dry season? Well, that year, God unleashed a massive thunderstorm upriver, and the water and mud gave the advantage to Barak and company. Barak and his soldiers pursued until not one soldier was left. Not a single man was left of Sisera's army. But what about the commanding general? As predicted by Deborah, the opposing general would not be killed by Barak, but instead, he would suffer an unexpected ending. Look in verses 17 through 20. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Eber the Kenite. 
And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, and gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. The once mighty Sisera was an even bigger coward than Barak started out to be. He fled the battle in a different direction from his troops. He completely abandoned his army, which ensured his army's complete annihilation, for there was no general to rally around. Sisera sought refuge in the tent of a family he thought he could trust. Heber the Kenite had left the people of Israel and no longer was loyal to them. The same could not be said for his wife Jael. She gave the once mighty general something to drink and then told him to hide under a rug. Now look at verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. After he had fell asleep, Jael performed a task that she had done hundreds of times during the course of her family's travels. In the Bedouin community, it was the woman's responsibility to pitch the tent. She drove a tent stake into the temple of Sisera and into the ground. Now eventually, Barak and his army would catch up. Judges 4, 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. I wonder if Barak remembered his discussion with Deborah and her concluding declaration. Remember Judges 4, verses 8 to 9? Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And Deborah said, I will surely go with you, nevertheless. The road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. It was a woman who killed Sisera, but it was God who provided the victory. Look in Judges 4, 23 and 24. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. So the narrative ends with the acknowledgement that it was God who gave the victory to Barak and his 10,000. Eventually, Jabin, king of Canaan, would be destroyed and the land and people would experience rest. A lesson to learn from the events of chapter 4 is expressed in the opening verses in chapter 5. In this passage, we discover that victories in life begin and are made possible with God. And when one has experienced victory in life, it is God who deserves the praise. Look in Judges 5, 1 and 2. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. When God's people have faith in God, when God's leaders follow God, when God's people obey, there is praise. Now listen to Judges 5, 3. Listen, kings, pay attention. I will sing to the Lord, I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. A praise song to God is the song of a well-lived life. For when there is faith, when there is obedience to God, you will find praise to the Lord. Looking back in summary, 
God is once again faithful to deliver when His people turn to Him and obey His commands. And when God's people are faithful to God, they will have reason and a desire to respond with praise. Our one point for this lesson, faith that obeys results in praise. God gives guidance, He provides strength, and He gives a reason to sing to those who follow Him in faith. Now, what does this mean to you? I will sing praise to you. As in the example of Deborah and Barak, praise comes from a heart that trusts and follows God. If you're not praising God, it's because you've not submitted your life to Him. You are to follow God in service and leave being a spectator behind. Or what if you don't feel that you have anything to celebrate, let alone praise Him for? Overwhelming victory over our enemies or our tribulations is never promised in the Bible. Achievement of personal goals or recognition on earth is not a guarantee given to us in Scripture. So how can you praise God when your life experience includes long-term health challenges, emotional hurts, workplace defeats, personal rejection, or even religious persecution? It's difficult to sing anything but the blues when you feel that you're under attack. Praise is not simply for when circumstances are going your way and people are applauding your presence. God is to be praised in all circumstances, in times of victory or in times of hardship. Here's a testimony from the book of Psalms, Psalm 42-3. He drew me from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The lesson is that your life is not to be lived solely for your comfort or for the praise of others. Instead, your life is to be lived in such a way that in all circumstances, your words, your actions, your thoughts will give glory to God and in the process, influence others to trust Him too. So take a close look at your life. Do you believe God deserves your obedience and praise? Are you living a life of obedience and praise in all circumstances? Has the Lord blessed you beyond all that you deserve? Does God give you strength when you struggle? Has the Lord demonstrated His power in your life when you were at your weakest? I'll ask once again, does God deserve your praise? I believe He does. Acknowledge the wonderful blessings and victories God has blessed you with by praising Him through your obedience. I want to challenge you to obey God's call to serve this week and open yourself up for a time of praise. Serve Him in your home and praise Him. Serve Him at work and praise Him. Serve Him in your community and praise Him. And serve Him through your family of faith and praise Him. And in fact, why not serve Him in your social media posts? And of course, don't forget to praise Him. Psalm 146.2 I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. My hope and prayer would be that that single verse would be our verse for this next week. Remember, the truth to take home from this lesson is this. Faith that obeys results in praise. If you would, just pause for a moment. Imagine what God could do with more believers like us who are willing to follow Him in obedience. Think about the testimony we will share with the world 
that sees Christ in us. Now imagine the explosion of praise in our hearts when we walk in faith. That can happen, but first, God calls us to serve. Now, if you are not a believer in Christ and would like to learn more, then contact me at jamesharms at gmail.com. I'd be honored to share with you how you can discover God's grace, love, forgiveness, and salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Discover the Bible with James Harms. I hope that you will share this podcast with others. And please, let me know if you have any questions. My email address is jamesharms at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you.